Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what is the message of the cross? You could probably talk to anyone on the street, you know, what's, what is the cross? And they'd say, well, it's a piece of jewelry I wear. Or they'd say, you know, I know the story. Jesus died on a cross. And, and uh, if, it was, if that was simply the message of the cross, that Jesus died on a cross, that would basically make him a martyr. And, you know, in today's day and age, I know some of us think I can't understand why someone would die for a, a cause or whatever, but we see that happening quite a bit in the world today, people dying for causes. And, you know, it, it seems almost in some senses to some people, it seems like a noble thing. So if it was just simply that Jesus died on a cross, that's the message. Well, he wouldn't be that much different than any other martyr that died uh, for a cause. So it's much more than that. It's much more than Jesus dying on a cross. We understand, and of course, we'll talk about that in East, at Easter, but his death was necessary because of my sin and because of your sin. His death brings atonement for sin. And it's through faith in his completed work on the cross, that's what saves us from our sins. So it's much more than just Jesus dying on a cross. And I would even go so far as to say it's even much more than that. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, in our day and age, cross, you know, it's just, you think of it as jewelry or stuff. And in the disciples' day and age, a cross was, it was like what we would consider maybe uh, the electric chair today. It was, a, it was a gruesome form of capital punishment. In fact, it was the most gruesome form of cash, capital punishment. Uh, it was, there was nothing pretty about it. They didn't wear it as jewelry back then, by the way. I don't think anyways. Um, what does a cross mean? It's an instrument of death. It means dying to the things of the world. It speaks of dying to ourself and uh, laying down our, our own, my own selfish desires on a daily basis. That's part of the message of the cross as well. And to a non-believer, to the world, they look at it and go, man, that's foolish. That goes contrary to the, what the world says and what the world teaches. And so Paul says the foolishness of the cross, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, man, it's the power of God. Listen, through the cross of Christ, you and I are, we're delivered from the penalty and the pollution of sin. We're delivered from it. The cross of Christ, it removes our guilt and our shame. There's nothing else that can remove my guilt and shame but Christ's sacrifice for me on the cross. The cross is what does that. The cross of Christ radically transforms a person's life. You've probably read testimonies of people that were uh, hell-bent literally in their lifestyle and completely radically changed by the power of the cross, what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Not only that, but the cross of Christ provides a way for you and I to enter into a personal relationship with God. You can't enter into a relationship with God apart from the cross of Christ. And through the cross of Christ, and this is one of the things, you know, when you, we go to a Christian's funeral, yeah, we're, we, we weep and we mourn over the death of a loved one or, you know, we, we grieve. But, but as a Christian, man, I, I have the hope of eternal life. And that's what the cross affords us. It gives us the, you know, through the cross of Christ, God imparts eternal life to us. So it is the power of God for us who are saved. And so now in verses 19 through the rest of the chapter, Paul starts speaking of the wisdom of the world. And I'll just give you a little clue. You can even tune yourself out. I hope you don't. But I mean, basically the bottom line is it does not benefit the human soul. The wisdom of the world does not benefit the human soul. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And Paul here, he's quoting from Isaiah 29, verse 14. But he's saying there, where is the wise man? You know, where is the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? 
think about just in this generation, okay, in past generations, think about right now. You know, if you want to know anything, where do you go? <laughs> Google, man. I don't know how to fix this thing on my car. I'm not going to ask Danny. I know he's busy. So I'm going to Google it and I'm going to figure out how to do it myself. You can find out just, you could become an expert on just about anything by Googling it, right? And we know that. That's kind of like, that, and that is a, I mean, that's our generation. I mean, but generations before, you'd have to have those, you know, my dad had the 1964, I think, edition of all the Br Britannia encyclopedias. It was in our entryway, you know, and if you want to find something out, I go in there and I read something about Kennedy, you know, 1964, or whatever. I'm like, okay, that's great, but what about today? You know, what about now? Well, shoot, it's all available on the internet, more than what you probably even want to know. Listen, think about all that vast knowledge of information available. Has any of that information imparted eternal life? Now, granted, you can hear the gospel now. You can Google about Jesus Christ, and you can get some awesome information about Jesus on, the, on, uh, on Google. You can Google information about it, unless they filter it out. I'm not sure. But, um, but listen, I'm speaking about the knowledge itself. It doesn't do you any good as far as your soul goes. You might be able to fix your car or something, but that's about it. Has a TED Talk ever transformed someone's life for eternity? Have you guys ever done a t listen to a TED Talk? A few people, there'll be... Yeah, just they, all kinds of topics. People, experts speak about whatever they want to speak about. You can get very educated. But that's never transformed anyone's life for eternity. All the philosophies, all the world religions, the systems of practices and beliefs in the end, it does nothing uh, to benefit the human soul with regard to eternity. With regard to the spiritual condition of the soul, it doesn't do anything. By the way, <clears throat> you know, some people, you talk to them, they seem really wise and stuff. Some people in their wisdom, I use that in quotes, are atheists. They say, oh, I just don't believe in God, right? That's an atheist. A is without and theos is God. So they don't, they don't believe in a God. And yet we know, if you read the Bible, the, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I mean, you just have to turn to Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day in a day, utter speech, night in a night, reveals knowledge. I mean, you just have to look up at the stars. There has to be a God. There has to be a creator. Others in their wisdom are agnostic. And that, again, A is without, and gnosis is the word knowledge. They're without knowledge. They don't know if God exists or not. They won't say, I don't believe in God. Well, I, I don't know. You know what's interesting thing about that in the Latin? You know what ag agnostic means in the Latin or what the word is? Ignoramus. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to ever say that to me. So you mean you're an ignoramus? <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. That's probably not a good way to witness to somebody. But listen, the world thinks they're wise. And I feel really bad for our kids going into public colleges and stuff. And, you know, they're just getting bombarded with just that, that worldview. I mean, we really need... Children's ministry is so important. You guys think, well, it's just somebody's just watching the kids so we can not be disturbed while we're in here. That's, if that's what you think, that's totally not what ministry is to the kids. We're trying to build a foundation and preparing them because when they get out into the world, the world's got a totally different message. And if our kids haven't been prepared, if they haven't been built up in that, they are prime targets for the enemy. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Listen, the world through its wisdom, it cannot reveal God to you. You'll never know God or ever, ever, or enter into a relationship with God through human wisdom. It won't happen. And it says it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, it's not like God had a plan A for saving mankind from their sin, and then we kind of goofed it up, and, and so now he has to go with plan B. No, God's plan of salvation was planned from before the creation of the world. And it, was, it pleased God to do it the way he did it. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who attain a greater understanding. It doesn't say that, does it? It says to those who believe that simple yet powerful message of the cross of Christ. 
And by the way, Paul is not talking about preaching foolishness. And you can hear a lot of foolish preaching. You, you can find it. It's around today. Well, here's a question for you. How do you know if someone's preaching foolishness? How do you know if I'm preaching foolishness this morning? How do you know? I've got three questions that you can always, it's kind of like a litmus test that I use. When I hear things and I go, ah, it doesn't sound, you know, I don't know if I've heard that before. Maybe it's a new wind of doctrine or maybe it's just like, ah, I'm not sure. You know, I, I apply a test to it. And this is the test. First of all, I ask myself, do I see it in the life or the teaching of Jesus? Did he teach about it? Do we see it in his life evidenced? Second question, did the church of Acts practice it? Did they practice whatever? And you can throw anything in there. Did the church of Acts practice it? And then finally, the third thing is, did the apostles teach on it? If you can answer yes to each of those three questions, I would say you're probably on pretty safe ground with whatever they're doing. If not, if there's like, well, you know, I... Boy, I don't, the apostles never taught on that. I'd be very leery about whatever it is that, that you're being to told or taught or whatever. So that's a test. In fact, you can do that today. You can look at what I'm saying and, and run it through that filter and see if I'm preaching foolishness to you or not. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus said, you know, Jews request a sign. And when Jesus was alive in his ministry there, they would come up to him. They'd say, show us a sign. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. And they'd probably go, huh? What? <laughs> What, do you mean? what does Jonah have to do with anything? You know, the Lord, in fact, had given them many signs, actually. It wasn't like he said, I'm not going to give you a sign. God had given the Jewish people thousands of signs throughout the Old Testament. Throughout their history, there were signs. In fact, he put it said pretty specifically in Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And there's so much prophecy concerning or signs to look for the coming of the Messiah. Psalm 22 is a perfect one. Uh, Isaiah 53, you, you just, there's tons of scripture. The Jews had signs. And so when they said, show us a sign, Jesus said, yeah, you've got all the signs. I'm not going to give you another sign. Just look at Jonah. Three days in the belly of the whale, right? Three days. And then he, he, was, he came out of the, so to speak, out of the grave. Um, so Jews request a sign. Greeks, well, that means Gentiles, but the Greek culture was predominant in, in that day and age. The Greeks seek after wisdom. And, you know, that sounds pretty good. You're seeking after, I want to become wise. But the problem is they're seeking after the wrong wisdom. Again, they're seeking through human wisdom, and you'll never know God through human wisdom. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. You see, the Jewish people, they couldn't see past the man, Jesus. I loved it when we went through the book of Exodus and we were talking about the tabernacle and we talked about the construction of the tabernacle and, and all the gold and the beautiful uh, stuff inside the tabernacle. And then there was layers and covers because it was a tent and covers over each one. And the last covering was just this rugged, weatherproofed badger skin. It's like there's nothing pretty, there's nothing glamorous about that, and yet that was a picture of Jesus Christ. And the Jews, when Jesus, you know, was on the earth showing, uh, you know, his ministry, they couldn't get past the man. They go, he's just an ordinary person. He's not the Messiah. In fact, in Mark 6, verse 3, it says that, you know, Jesus is speaking, and, and the people in Galilee said, is this not, excuse me, Nazareth said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? So they were offended at him. They couldn't see past the man. They also couldn't see past the cross. See, they expected a Messiah to usher in his kingdom then, right then and there, because Rome was the occupying power. We got to kick Rome out of here. And the Messiah is coming. He's going to take care of these guys. He's going to get them out of here, and he's going to usher in another golden age, like the age of David. So they were expecting that. 
from the Messiah. They couldn't see past the man and they couldn't see past the cross. In fact, you know, even his disciples stumbled. They stumbled a little bit because in Mark 8, 31 and 32, it says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he rose again. It says he spoke this word openly. And then one of his disciples, Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It just didn't, it just didn't match what they were expecting of the Messiah. So the, to the Jews, the cross of Christ, a crucified Christ is a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. You can see that in the book of Acts. Paul went to Athens, which was basically the, it was like the, the, the center of Greek wisdom and culture and thought. And, uh, and, and Paul was there ministering and they invited him to the Arapapa. <laughs> I always pronounce it wrong. The era of Pagagos. Well, you know what I'm talking about. The place where they spoke about wisdom. See, I'm not, I, they wouldn't invite me there. I can tell you that much. <clears throat> the Europa. Yeah, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> this place in Athens. And uh, they wanted to hear what Paul had to say because they liked to hear every new thing. You know, like, wow, this is new. I want to hear what you have to say. And so Paul started list, uh, preaching to them and they were listening. But it says in Acts 17, verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. But when they heard about the resurrection, like, okay, this, does, this guy's speaking foolishness. In fact, later on in Acts 26, Paul is before King Agrippa and Festus. And uh, in Acts 22, verses 24, um, <clears throat> Paul is speaking. He's ministering to these guys. He's witnessing. And he says, therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and greats, uh, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses had said uh, would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now he said, thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're besides yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. They thought he was crazy. The resurrection of the dead, that's nuts. See, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And now here, Paul starts addressing God's wisdom, and he's going to contrast it with man's wisdom. And before we even get into that, we just he starts with verse 25, and basically what he's doing, he's kind of giving a mental picture, trying to quantify God's wisdom compared to man's wisdom. How does man's wisdom stack up to God's wisdom? And so he uses this verbal picture. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What Paul is basically saying is God's wisdom is infinitely greater than man's wisdom. Man on his best day can't even come close to matching God on his worst day. Now, just by the way, just to set the record straight, God can't have a worse day, okay? God doesn't have a bad day. Um, <clears throat> but it's just a mental picture. Hopefully you're understanding that. And God's power is infinitely greater than man's power. Man's greatest strength can't compare to God's weakest moment. Again, God's not weak. We understand that. But there's this picture. It's just, you, man will ne man's just infinitely below God's wisdom and God's power. Verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." You know, it doesn't say not any wise according to the flesh are called. I think of Ravi Zacharias. There's a wise, there's a wise person that was called. You ever, you ever want to listen to this guy? I mean, he's, he's a great person to listen. He's a very wise person, very smart, very intelligent. I, I wholeheartedly endorse his, what he teaches and what he says. But it doesn't say not any wise according to the flesh are called or not any mighty or, or not any noble. It says not many 
Not many are called. Listen, if God only used the wise according to the flesh, if he only used the mighty or the strong to bear his message to the world, there's two things that would probably happen. The first thing is those people, the mighty, the strong, the wise that he chose, there's a very good chance that they would start thinking too highly of themselves because one of man's weaknesses is pride. And it would be very easy for them to become prideful. That was the one thing, I think, why God did not choose many wise, strong, uh, and mighty. The other second thing is that people would start to worship the wise, the mighty, and the strong. Because again, that's our human tendency to glorify man. So either the people themselves become prideful or the people, or not the people, the wise people themselves, or the people that are listening to him start going, whoa, he's, wow, he's awesome, you know. And they would put him on a pedestal. I was uh, talking last week with a gentleman, and I kind of discerned in talking to him a few times that I thought he had a very unhealthy attitude towards someone that he had placed on a pedestal. And, I mean, he was just like, it was like he was worshiping this individual. And as he was talking, it was like the Spirit was speaking to me. In fact, I shared this with him later. But all I could think of was Isaiah 6, verse 1. Isaiah 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Do you guys know who King Uzziah was? He was 16 years old when he was made king of Judah. So he was a good, I mean, he was with it. He was hip. He was young. And he became ruler over Judah. And he reigned for 52 years. That's a long reign compared to most of the kings of Judah. That's, that's a long time. Very, very wise king. A very good king. Uh, especially, a godly king, especially in his youth. We're told in, <clears throat> I think it's Second Chronicles, I believe, um, he became a great military leader. Uh, he was well known by the nations all around Israel. He was a great builder, in fact. He, he initiated lots of civil engineering projects. Uh, he even invented war machines. So, I mean, this guy was, I mean, he was at the top of his game, and it was almost like another golden age for the, for the kingdom of Judah when he was their king. And, uh, but there's two things that happened to him. Remember I said earlier that one of the reasons, you know, I don't think God chooses many wise according to the flesh or mighty or noble is because of human pride. And that is exactly what happened to Uzziah. Later on in his life, we're told that his heart was lifted up and he sinned against the Lord. What he did was he entered into the temple and he offered burnt incense before the Lord. And that was only the Levitical priests were allowed to do that. And he and his pride went in there and did that. So he sinned against the Lord. Not only that, but people put him on a pedestal. In fact, it's possible, and I'm not saying it, but it's possible Isaiah may even had a little bit of a real high estimation of this king. Because then in Isaiah 6, verse 1, the Lord gives Isaiah a vision. And it was when, Isaiah, uh, excuse me, when Uzziah died that then his attention was turned back to the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. You know, sometimes the Lord has to do that with people that are prideful. Christians that are prideful, God sometimes put, he notch, knocks them down a couple notches to humble them. And sometimes people put other Christians on a pedestal. Maybe someone led you to the Lord or it's a great teacher or whatever, and you can have an unhealthy attitude. You put them on a pedestal, and sometimes God will take them off that pedestal because he doesn't want you to be focused on man. He wants you to be focused on him. God knows our hearts. <clears throat> That's why verse 27 says, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. God's purpose is that no flesh should glory in his presence. And it's not like God's insecure. You know, it's like he needs all the attention. You know, he's like he was the youngest child. I was the youngest child, by the way. You know, he needs all the attention and everything. That's not it. God knows the heart of man. Either man's going to glorify himself or other men are going to glorify that man. You know, I'm also thankful God chooses, chooses the weak. Uh, by the way, I'm not saying they are weak, but they look weak to the world. 
the mighty, the noble. Again, that's not saying that they're not mighty and they're not mobile, uh, noble. <laughs> but, uh, but to the world, that's how Christians look. I'm glad that God doesn't just choose those that have it all together. Because if he did, man, what hope would it be for me? What hope would it be for you? And that's a, an encouragement. Hopefully it's an encouragement for you and for me. Yeah, I've messed up. I'm a goofball. But you know what? God chose me. And God can use me. And if, believe me, if God can use me, <laughs> I know he can use you guys. I know he can. In fact, you can go through the Bible and look at all the examples of God using the least likely person for his glory. King David, he was the rent of the litter. You know, they went through all the line of all the sons. And, 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 and uh, was it Samuel that was uh, looking for, you know, who's, who was going to be the king of Israel? And Samuel thought was the tall guy. He looks presidential. You know, the other guy had nice hair like President Trump. And the other guy, you know, he went down the list. And the <clears throat> Lord's like, no, that ain't it. That ain't it. That ain't it. And then finally he's like, well, there is no more sons. Jesse didn't even bring him in to have him, have him be even, they didn't even consider that he would possibly be one of the guys. He was out there taking care of the sheep. Have you got any more sons? Well, yeah, there's one out in the field. Well, bring him here. That's who God chose. So be encouraged this morning. Verse 30. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Man, we are in Christ Jesus. That speaks about a personal relationship. Colossians 3, 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I hope that encourages you this morning. My, my life is hidden with Christ in God. He became wisdom for us. In other words, wisdom just doesn't come from him. Wisdom is only found in him, in your relationship with him. Our righteousness is in him. In fact, you know, when we repent of our sins and we're, we're saved from our sins, we're not only declared not guilty, I'm thankful that we are declared not guilty, but it's not just, it's not just that you're not guilty anymore. It goes beyond that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not only we're not guilty, but we're declared righteous before God. It's in Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is in him. Our sanctification is in him. When you and I come to faith in Christ, we are positionally sanctified. What I mean by that is, you are declared sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ, by God. He looks at you and he sees Jesus' righteousness. You're sanctified. We're also practically being sanctified. As we continue on in our relationship with the Lord, we're continually being conformed into the image of the Son of God. Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That was one verse that was brought up yesterday in our, in our men's conference. This, this gentleman, Matt Mayer, you know, he went through some incredible suffering. It, it, he caused it. It was his sin. But through that suffering, man, the Lord God was conforming him. And if you heard his testimony, it was amazing how the Lord used him. But it was through suffering, because if you back up to verse 828, and this is a verse we all know and we all love, right? And God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, the called according to his purpose. I love that. That's one of my favorite verses. When I'm going through stuff, I'm, man, God's causing all things to work together for good. But it's even suffering. And the purpose, the good that God is trying to do, he's trying to conform you and I to the image of his son. So that sanctification, it's in him. Our redemption is in him. That word is from the slave trade. You see, because you and I were slaves to sin, but we've been purchased by the blood of the cross. Titus 2.14, <coughs> excuse me, who gave himself for, speaking of Jesus, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Our redemption is in Christ. In fact, everything that you and I need is in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. 
It's all in. It's all in a relationship with Jesus. It's not just knowing about Jesus or going to church. It's having that relationship and being in Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> we get to chapter 2. Paul's been talking about man's wisdom and comparing it to God's wisdom. And now he speaks to the Corinthians about how, okay, so, okay, we've learned about the wisdom. What is, okay, what do I do with it? Well, God says, well, this is how it affects me in my ministry. This is how I apply it. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, <clears throat> did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I did not know, uh, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul said, I didn't try to spiritually manipulate you into believing Jesus Christ. I didn't try to sway you intellectually or emotionally. Now, understand this. It's not that the message of the cross is not intellectual. It is. And it's not that the message of the cross is not emotional. It is emotional. But listen, relying on that as your way of trying to share the gospel with people, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Paul says, I didn't try to spiritually manipulate you. He also didn't try to become divisive with them. You know, he didn't come into Corinth there and said, okay, I got to understand this. Are you once saved or always saved? What's your position? Uh, are you a pre, post, or mid-trib? Where do you stand on that? Are you King James Version only? Or do you, you know, what do you believe? Do you sprinkle or immerse? Are you Arminian or Calvinist? Are you charismatic or cessationist? Are you decaf or caffeinated? That's, to me, that's the one question I always have to ask people. That's the big one. <laughs> Paul didn't come in there doing that. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone who majored on the minors? It can be very frustrating. They have a PhD on, these, on the non-essentials. I mean, they, they've studied it. They've got it. They know it. You know, they're, they're, they could teach a per, you know, class in college on that. And sometimes their main focus is to evangelize the, evangelize, the ones that are already saved, to convert you to whatever their position is. I've had that happen to me several times before. You probably have too. Listen, I want to just under, have you understand something. Those things that I said, once saved, always saved, pre-post, mid-trib, King James Version only, sprinkler, all those things that I said, maybe you can identify with some of them. Like, I think it's important to know what you believe. I think it's important to have, to understand what the Bible says about these. It's important. I do think it is. <clears throat> but if that's your only, if that's your focus, you've missed, you've missed it. If that's that thing that you're focused on, I, I'm sorry to say, you're, you're, you're off track there. Listen, Paul was highly educated. He knew the scriptures. He could have debated. He could have argued. He could have said, ah, you're wrong, and, and this is why. And he could have laid it all out. And I bet you he would have been on the winning side of every argument, every equation. He would have won that argument. But he set that all aside. He says, I'm determined. Now, he could have, but he says, I'm determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that is the eternal issue for all mankind. We talked about that last week. There's only two kinds of people, saved and unsaved. You can divide, I mean, we divide them all different kinds. You know, what color are you or what race, what this or that. God looks at you, are you saved or you're not saved? That's, that's the division of mankind. And so Paul says, I, I, didn't, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can I encourage you, when you're sharing the gospel with someone as an unbeliever, don't major on the minors, man. Keep the main thing, the main thing, the cross of Christ. It's so, that's, I mean, if, if they come to your agreement on something on a side issue, but they've never, they never enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ, you've wasted your breath. It's, a, it's an exercise in futility. I really believe so. So verse 3, Paul says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. 
And you think about this, the life of Paul. Everywhere Paul had been up until the time of Corinth, man, he had been persecuted. He had been, uh, there had been riots started in cities because of him. He had been in jail. He'd been beaten. And so Paul comes to Corinth. And it wasn't that Paul was, uh, uh, was weak and fearful in the sense of timidity. It's like, oh, I don't want to get beat up. You know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say anything. It wasn't that. But I want to, I'm going to just read a few verses, and I want you to listen to Paul's heart in some of the letters that he wrote. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, which we'll get to eventually, Paul says this, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul, you wrote almost the whole New Testament, a good portion of it. And you're worried that you might become disqualified? Yeah, he was. he was. He was worried. He was careful. He guarded his heart because he didn't want to become disqualified. That's humility. Listen to another one, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may, not, may be of God and not of us. Can you imagine Paul walking into a city where they already knew him? Obviously, he went to all kinds of places, but... The Christians would just be thronging him. Hi, Paul, would you sign my Bible? Someone said, would you sign my Bible? You know, Paul, you know, I got to touch this guy. I got to get a selfie with the apostle, you know. Um, you, people do that, right? Could you imagine it, how it can maybe have been a temptation for Paul to go, yeah, hey, I'm here, man. I'm the apostle. I'm the apostle, you know. Um, Paul didn't do that. He says, man, we have this treasure, but it's in an earthen vessel, man. I'm just, I'm just mud. I'm clay. Nothing good in me. Well, the message is good in me. The treasure is good in me. But I myself, I'm just a clay pot. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 5. Paul is speaking about this vision. I won't go into it. But he says, of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself, I will not boast except in my infirmities. Let me just ask you rhetorically. Are, do you boast in your infirmities? Are you, are you afraid to let someone know your weakness? or maybe where you fail or where you stumble. Are you afraid that, I don't want anybody to know that. Paul's, Paul wasn't afraid of that. Paul, the only thing Paul would boast in was, hey, man, I, I blow it, man. I, I'm, sometimes I say the wrong things or I do, I don't know exactly what he did, but you know what I'm saying. He basically boasted in his weaknesses. So Paul says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Verse 4, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, of human wisdom, excuse me, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen, human wisdom says this, what can I say that will convince them to believe in Jesus Christ? I mean, what, what's, what's the hook line, you know? Or, or what can I say that's going to keep people in the pews? Or how can I draw in the seekers without chasing them away? That, that's human wisdom. <coughs> Paul says, I didn't use human wisdom. My preaching wasn't with human wisdom. It was with a demonstration of spirit and power. Again, you know, it's, it's not uh, conjured up by us. You know, some people really like fire and brimstone preachers. If, if you like that, you probably don't like me because I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher. You know, you know the type. They're really, really loud. They pound their fists a lot. They wave. They point, you know, and, and they move around. It, it's kind of, I got a kind of a, for me, it was a humorous story, but I used to do Bible studies in the jail, in the county jail here, and uh, we had a schedule, and I don't remember what my rotation was. I think it was like every other weekend. On a Sunday, I'd go into the jail, and there were other pastors, local guys, that would also, you know, take over. Well, one day they had our schedule mixed up, and I showed up in the jail on a Sunday evening <clears throat> to do my Bible study with the, with the prisoners there. And there was another pastor that was already there. He had got there before me. And uh, so they brought us both into this, or actually they brought me. They were like, well, Pastor so-and-so, I'm not going to say his name, but Pastor so-and-so, he's in there. So you can just go in there with them. I was like, okay. So I went into this area where, where they were. And, I, and so I'm, I'm watching. There's probably maybe a dozen prisoners or so. And here's this preacher and he's just pointing the finger and he's yelling and he's loud and he's, oh, you sinners, and he's doing all this. And I kid you not, I was watching this guy and I thought, I literally thought his feet jumped up a few inches off the ground and he'd make his point. He's like, oh, you know, and you know, so I'm watching him do this and then I'm watching the prisoners 
And these guys are like, oh, brother, you know, they're, they're like, you know, it, it, they were like, it was like entertainment for him, basically. Well, he got done, you know, we, we went in there, he's like, well, you're here, I'm here, oh, and so I just, you know, he was doing, and he got done, he goes, okay, well, I'm finished, your turn. And I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not always the most spiritual person. My flesh rose up, and I, I said, basically, I said, uh, uh, that's okay. You're a pretty tough act to follow. <laughs> and I, I just like, that's okay. I think they're, they're done. Um, <clears throat> Some people try to conjure, conjure up fire and brimstone. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. You see, the power is inherent in the Word of God because the Bible says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. I don't have to, I don't have to conjure up power or fire. Sometimes you, people look at a preacher and he's like, well, he's really, the, he's the man, he's filled with the Spirit because he's, he's really, you know, he's really into it. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Listen, sometimes I've shared a message and I've heard other pastors share the same thing before. And I've had people come up to me afterwards and say, you know how you won't believe, but you just spoke. It was like, this is what I've been praying about. The Lord just, the Lord just spoke to me through that. It, you know, the power of the Holy, and it's not me. I don't follow people around trying to figure out, okay, I wonder if I can say this, if that's going to manipulate them. No, I don't do that. But the Holy Spirit knows all of us. And the Holy Spirit takes that message. And sometimes, you know, he, there's the gift of, Knowledge, the word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. It, it's, it happens during the preaching sometimes. A word of prophecy. I, in fact, I'll share with you this <clears throat> on a kind of a personal basis. I won't go into detail. But during the conference, this, this guy is sharing something. He was talking about husbands and wives and stuff. And it was, it was really powerful what he was sharing. And as he was speaking, I've been dealing with this issue I don't know, a couple months and stuff, and not really knowing how to, how to address this issue. And as I'm sitting there and he's speaking, it was like the Lord also was speaking to me and said, hey, this is, this, other, this is the issue. This is the other issue that you're dealing with. And here's the answer. And it was like, and he wasn't even talking about anything, but the Spirit was speaking to me through him. There's power. There's power in the Word of God. Verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of the sage nor the rulers of the sage who are coming to nothing. You know, it wasn't like Paul had to water down the message and make it like, if anybody's in fifth grade, I'm not trying to offend you. you know, I'm trying to make it fifth grade level so that, you know, a little child can, again, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but, you know, <clears throat> trying to water it down so that uh, it's really simple or, or not address difficult subjects. I'm going to keep it really surface. It's not that Paul, Paul did that. He spoke wisdom, but it was God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. Verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. That word mystery, we talked about it last Wednesday night. It's the word mysterion, and it basically means something that was hidden or obscured but is now revealed. <clears throat> and we talked about that in Colossians. That mystery is, is Christ in the Old Testament. Christ throughout the Old Testament scriptures being revealed. It was hidden, but now it's revealed. Verse 9, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know how many of you know that verse or quote it or whatever. It's a beautiful verse, right? And I think, man, when I get to heaven, I can't imagine what it's going to be like. You know, it's actually not what Paul is addressing here because we sometimes take that verse by itself, but it really should be quoted along with verse 10. Let me read verse 9 again, and I'll go into verse 10. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But look at verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. I get this one from one of my word study things. It says the words are not to be limited to future blessings in heaven. Numbers they apply, but they're not to be limited to that. They are true of the present. See, what Paul is saying, I think, in verse 9, you and I, we get a lot of information for what we see and hear, right? 
I look at something, I can kind of, I can, I can draw some conclusions. And yet, Paul says there's spiritual things that you can't, you can't learn it through seeing. We get a lot of information through the ear, what you hear about something, you know. And yet, there's spiritual things that we can't learn through the hearing of our ears. In fact, there's things, spiritual things, that we can't even comprehend them through reasoning or trying to, you know, I'm going to really mentally grasp this thing. You know, we can read the Bible and study it factually or historically. All good things to do, by the way. Well, however, however people read and study the Bible, but you can only arrive at the spiritual truths in the Bible through the Holy Spirit revealing it to you in a relationship with the Lord. That's the only way you're going to get it. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God expect, except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. How many of you guys have pets? You don't have to raise your hand. And, you know, maybe you have a dog. <clears throat> Do you know what your dog's thinking? Can you, can you, I mean, I know exactly what my dog's thinking. You know, we can maybe arrive to some conclusions, right? If your dog's wagging his tail, um, you know, you, you kind of draw a conclusion. Or if you hear a low growl, okay, keep my hands back. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I understand there's something going on. Uh, or, you know, maybe you realize a dog looks frightened. Now, people say dogs smile. I don't know that that's true or not. But, you know, we can kind of draw some conclusions about what a dog is thinking by looking at it. But we don't really know, right, because we're not dogs. Same is true. You and I, from a human standpoint, we can't know the thoughts of God from a human standpoint. We may arrive at some conclusions based on what we see, hear, or think, but we really <clears throat> don't know the thoughts of God except as they are revealed through the Spirit of God. And you and I have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. God has given us a spirit to dwell inside of us. And so the Holy Spirit reveals the things freely given to us by God. It comes through him. And it's not that God is keeping a secret and doesn't want you to know. So I go, okay, maybe we'll see if they find. No, God wants us to know the thing. He wants you to know. He wants you to inquire. He wants to reveal that things, things to you. But you're not going to get it any other way but apart from your relationship with Christ. In verse uh, 13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can they know them because they're spiritually discerned. See, the message of the cross and everything that it entails, it's foolishness to the natural man. Some of us have a boomer going on, boom speakers or something. <laughs> Anyways, guess I really like, where is that? <clears throat> In fact, the natural man, when I speak of a natural man, oh, I'm a natural man. No, it's, a, it's what it means is basically an unsaved person, okay? <laughs> an unsaved person can't, even if they wanted to try to discern spiritual things, they can't. They're unable to because it has to be revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You might be sitting there thinking, oh, great. A spiritual person judges all things. I don't feel very spiritual. Well, who's Paul talking about? Who is spiritual? It's someone who has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. Let me ask you this morning. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you do, the Holy Spirit's dwelling inside you. He's a sign and a seal of your salvation. You have the Spirit of God dwelling inside you. You are that spiritual person that Paul is talking about. Someone who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them, as opposed to an unbeliever, judges all things. In other words, he understands these spiritual things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. In other words, he's not understood by the unbeliever. They can't figure you and I out. Now, it says he's not rightly judged. You see, because he is judged, but not rightly. You think about the world today. What is the Christian's 
What does the world look at us? They can't figure us out and they judge us, right? We're haters. We're bigots. We're, we're you know, we're, we're uh, whatever, whatever you want to put it in there. That's, that's what they, they uh, judge us by that. We discriminate. We have evil motives. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? You know, mankind can't understand the ways of the Lord. His ways are above our ways. There's things the Lord does. I just like, I don't understand that. But he finishes that. We have the mind of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, and we have the mind of Christ. Now, why did Paul say that? Listen, Paul, and as we go through this letter, Paul is going to address a very carnal church. They're Christians. They have the Spirit dwelling inside of them. They even have the mind of Christ. And yet, we're going to read about divisions. We're going to read about strife. We're going to read about lack of love. We're going to read about Christians suing other Christians. What's the problem? Well, the problem isn't that they don't have the mind of Christ, because guess what? They do. But the problem is they're thinking like the natural man thinks. They're thinking like their old nature. They've fallen back to their old nature, and they're thinking, reasoning, speaking, acting, how they see and how they hear things. So for you and I, the mind of Christ, I want to finish with this verse. It's in Colossians. If you come to church on Wednesday nights, we're going to actually be getting to this pretty soon. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Stop thinking like the unbelievers think. Stop thinking like you used to think. You have the mind of Christ. So how do we do that? Well, I got you got to get into the Word of God because that's where God reveals His heart to mankind is through His Word. So you got to read His Word. If the only time that you read your Bible is when I'm, I'm up here and say, okay, you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter, if that's the only time you read your Bible once a week, man, I tell you, you're on a starvation diet. You need to be in God's Word because as you do that, the Holy Spirit's going to start revealing the mind of the Lord to you. He's going to start revealing deep spiritual things that you wouldn't have got any other way. It's through the Word of God and spending time in His presence. So if I can't stress anything this morning, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles.